I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallaxies listeners. On this spooky season edition of the show, we're speaking with Cecil Laird of the Horror Show YouTube channel about his new fan sequel to Wes Craven's new nightmare. It's Dylan's new nightmare. This fan film, though, isn't your average fan film. If you're thinking it's going to be, oh, I don't know, uh, some kids in their backyard making a movie, no. This movie actually features Nico Hughes reprising his role from Wes Craven's New Nightmare. If you remember that movie, he played Heather Langenkamp's young son, Dylan. 30 years later, he's back and he's going at it with Freddy Krueger again in Dylan's New Nightmare. It's a rather professionally made short fan sequel to Wes Craven's New Nightmare and hopefully will spawn a sequel or two. In any case, you can view it right now on YouTube at the Horror Show YouTube channel. It's very professionally made, looks slick, looks like, uh, you know, a movie <laughs> and uh, not just some backyard project. This is a real, you know, labor of love on the part of Cecil Laird and everyone else involved with the project. So without any further ado, let's get right to it with Cecil Laird, who will be telling us all about Dylan's new nightmare and will also discuss the immense staying power of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise and its impact on popular culture. Welcome to Parallax Views, guests I'm really excited to be speaking with. Uh, as listeners of the show will know, around Halloween, I do these series of, uh, you know, spooky season themed episodes. 
And I wanted to get on someone who is doing, who has done, I would say, a really accomplished fan film. There's very few fan films that reach the level of professionalism I've seen in this one. I'm talking with Cecil Laird, who is the man behind the new fan film, Dylan's New Nightmare, which acts as a sequel to Wes Craven's New Nightmare. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So, uh, Cecil, uh, for listeners that are unfamiliar uh, with Wes Craven's New Nightmare, uh, maybe you could tell them a little bit about uh, that movie and then also uh, your first experience seeing it, because I'm assuming it left an impact on you uh, for you to want to do a a sequel. Yeah, definitely. So Wes Craven's New Nightmare was the seventh installment of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. And it was the first one to have Wes Craven come back in full capacity as writer and director uh, after the first one. And he, you know, the the series had kind of gone uh, off the rails a little bit with Freddie just becoming a complete comedy being, you know, by the time Freddie's Dead came around. And so uh, Wes wanted to course correct with New Nightmare. And it also was Wes's first foray into meta sort of filmmaking that he would then follow up with scream about two years after. So he, you know, he, he brought Freddie in uh, back to being scary. He also brought the franchise into the real world where the actress that played Nancy Thompson in the nightmare one and three films, um, she returned, but as herself, the actress Heather Langenkamp with a fictional son named Dylan as Freddie, the uh, an evil entity rather that has taken the form of Freddie, is trying to break into our reality <clears throat> to cause some havoc. And uh, so Dylan and his mom have to uh, stop Freddie, and they do. And then uh, I just I really enjoyed the film. I love the Nightmare franchise. Freddie's always been um, one of my top two, if not my top slashers, and. Um, I, I just really enjoy those films and I loved new nightmares, new approach to everything. I was 14 when it came out. So I was very impressionable and it also gave me my first glimpse into the behind the scenes of making films. And it also was the only horror film that my dad ever went with me to the theater to go and see. Cause I oh, was a big horror fan. Theaters. Wow. Oh yeah. Yeah. He, he took me and uh, cause I really wanted to see it. I was a big Freddie fan and he was willing to go and, you know, he was up and down. And at the end, he's like, ah, I don't know why you like those movies so much. But uh, but it, still, it's the only time he ever went with me to the theater. So it holds a special place in my heart for that reason. So when I started thinking about which uh, what kind of fan film I wanted to make after seeing Never Hike Alone, because I technically did a fan film in 2016 for a Stephen King property called Sweet, um, which was based on the American Vampire comic book series. Uh, we, uh, I wanted to do something more high profile and I've always loved Freddy. So I wanted to try Freddy and sequelizing new nightmare was the best way in, uh, story-wise for me. I felt like bring, and plus I had access to Miko Hughes via mad monster convention, um, whom we were doing the press for at the time. So he was going to mad monster, North Carolina, and then mad monster, Arizona four months later. And it was, a uh, a perfect opportunity for me to approach someone to see if it was worth my time to try and write the film to see, you know, uh, cause the idea was to bring him back. And if he wasn't into it, then I wouldn't write it. But when I asked him at Mad monster, North Carolina, 
if he'd be interested in reading a script if a fan wrote it and he said yeah i'd, I'd at least take a look so once he said that i took the next four months and and wrote the script so that way i could present it to him at man monster arizona and luckily enough he enjoyed it enough to want to be a part of the project so yeah it was a pretty crazy series of events that that ended up working out before we get more into uh dylan's new nightmare and i, I should note for listeners uh miko use that's a big get because he played little Dylan, Heather mm-hmm. Camp's kid, in Wes Craven's New Nightmare. And he's also the legendary character of Gage in Pet Cemetery. Uh, but we'll get into all of that, what it was like working uh, with Miko. But just for me, I, I wanted to recount my first experience with uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. I was just flipping through TV one day in the 2000s, you know, and I guess it was on Encore Mystery, Uncut. You know, so that was cool. And when I watched it, I was just kind of blown away because it's such a different take on the whole mythology. And it's kind of deep in its own way. You know, um, it's kind of a movie where Wes Craven is playing with this sort of philosophical notion about horror. In a way, he's saying we need horror uh, to keep the demons at bay. You know, like the whole premise of the movie is if another movie isn't made, this demon that takes the form of Freddy is going to break out. And that that to me is one of the most interesting aspects mm-hmm. of Wes Craven's new nightmare, because it's not really, it's not the Freddy we know. It's this thing called the entity that's just taking on the form of Freddy. And it's interesting because in some ways I don't hear people talk about Wes Craven's new nightmare nearly as much as the other entries. But when you ask people, what are the best nightmare movies? I often hear people say, Wes Craven's New Nightmare is like the second best, even if it's not their favorite. Uh, what do you think it is about Wes Craven's New Nightmare that really, um, I guess, captures people? But also, I-, I think in some ways people overlook it in in some ways, and just uh, because it's so different than the other entries. Could you speak to that a little bit? I think because it's different, it it gets looked down on from some people. But I also think that difference is what makes so many people like it as much as they do. Like, it really modernized the whole franchise. It was made in 1994, whereas uh, I think all the rest except for Freddy's Dead were made in the 80s. So um, I think Freddy's Dead was 90 or 91. And uh, all the rest were, were in the 80s, if I'm not mistaken. So those all feel of a time and new nightmare really brought in more, you know, it just feels a lot more modern to me and it feels like it was made more cleanly, um, less sort of down and dirty slashery, more, more filmed like a drama with a couple of slasher moments than a slasher movie. So I think it stands out from the rest of the series in that way, as well as, you know, being something that feels, you know, you don't feel like you're necessarily back in the 80s watching the film, you know, like the other ones very much feel of the 80s. Yeah, and I was just going to add to that, too. It's also, like you said, it's it's really one of the earliest meta horrors, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's I mean, people credit Scream, but this is like a year or two before Scream. Mm-hmm. The Scream was, I believe. 95 or 96 right yeah yeah exactly I, I wasn't sure which of those either so yeah it's at least a year or two between um new nightmare and scream uh what was your favorite moment uh from wes craven's new nightmare what what's you know ingrained in your brain from the movie oh god so much i mean it's always been one of my favorites um let me see i would say that 
um i always did like the 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 whole opening sequence the whole you know you start off thinking it's just a, a recap of him building the glove but then he cuts his own hand off and it's this cool new metal glove and i was like whoa what is that and then it's revealed that it's the the actual filmmaking and we meet all the characters heather uh her son her husband uh wes uh makes an appearance you know um trying to stop all the craziness on the set there's a couple of really great kills it sets a tone for the rest of the movie that's amazing so i think the opening is is really incredible for wes craven's new nightmare it does so much for the rest of the film in in a very short time yeah it's also very much the thing that always stuck out to me was it has like this fairy tale quality that i think is in the first movie that gets lost in the uh, the later movies you know you even have you know the famous scene at the end spoilers even though it's been like 30 years but you know you have the famous scene at the end where they've literally gone through this really surrealistic sort of hell space with freddie and uh then you have heather langenkamp reading the story back to miko so there, there's always like a fairy tale element to it too a very well, dark the whole thing sort of fantasy is, yeah yeah it's it's all uh ansel and gretel Right. They they hit on it a few times. And the um, you know, he leaves breadcrumbs in the in the form of sleeping pills for her and stuff. So, yeah, very much uh, fairy tale woven throughout. So then putting together. Dylan's new nightmare, how, how did you conceive of the story or the plot? Maybe you could give a, a summary for people who haven't seen it. And by the way, folks, uh, the horror show channel on YouTube, you can watch this for free. It's a fan film. So. It was a labor of love, and I, I highly recommend people look up Dylan's New Nightmare. But tell us a little bit about the the summary of the plot, and then how you came up with the story, and you know the work that went into making sure that this would uh, do justice to the Wes Craven original. I just yeah, I, I went into the whole thing wanting to honor what Wes did, and I had my story, <clears throat> but. Um... But, you know, it was a matter of making sure that it works in universe, that it was something that Miko would be interested in. And to me, the whole crux of New Nightmare is the relationship between Miko and Heather. And so I wanted to focus on the drama of that. But obviously with Heather not in the picture, because, you know, it, Heather, when I started this, I didn't want to approach Heather until we had a near complete film. Um, to to see if she'd want to take part because I know that I'm or I'm sure she must have been asked you know hundreds of times to be in fan films and you just never know how they're going to turn out and I just didn't want to be another person asking her to be a part of a fan film when she didn't know the quality that we would be able to achieve that I was confident we'd be able to achieve so um, you know that I just wanted to make sure that we were we weren't even going to make the movie unless we were able to raise the correct amount of money which. We set out to raise 40,000. We raised just over 30 in the first campaign and we were just going to roll with it and uh, do what we could. But then COVID hit the month before we were supposed to go to camera. So we had to delay because our Freddie was in Canada and no essential travel or non-essential travel was not allowed from Canada to the U S for the entire span of that, like two and a half years. So we had that delay. And in the meantime, we made sure to like really take another look at the script and tighten it up as much as we could add some things 
to make it a little bit more interesting, um, a little bit more juicy for the actors. And then uh, we were like, well, if we've got the time, let's try and raise the rest of the funds. So we started the finishing funds campaign and we ended up raising the rest of what we needed. And, um, you know, we so we we just went went ahead that way and tried to make it as high end as we possibly could, um, because that's what was going to impress people. We just didn't want to be another backyard production because that's what a lot of fan films tend to be. But that's also why I brought in um, Miko and Vince DeSanti, who made Never Hike Alone. Um, I want you to talk about that yeah. a little bit because yeah. not not to interrupt you, but no, no, by all means. When, a lot of times when people hear the term fan film, they think something very cheaply made, like in their backyard. But really, you know, the game has changed with a lot of fan films now. You know, Vincent DeSanti, I think, kicked open a lot of doors when he made Never Hike Alone. That's, I mean, it's called a fan film, but it feels extremely professional. And then you have these movies like the Friday the 13th Vengeance fan films, which famously went with the tagline, more than just a fan film. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course you had Dave McRae's um, It's Me, Billy, the fan film sequel to Black Christmas. And if you watch these fan films, they don't feel like fan films. So I guess, and that's also true of D Dylan's New Nightmare. I just want to, no, yeah, thank people. you. <laughs> what do you think has changed? Because I mean, I'm seeing even fan films of like My Bloody Valentine now. There was one that came out last year that was a fan film sequel to that. And mm -hmm. they don't feel like fan films anymore. How has the game changed when it comes to fan films the past few years? It's just, I think it's people willing to put the actual time and effort and money into it as long as they raise the right amount crowdfunding wise. You know, it's a very budget is very, very limiting and uh, you have to know how to spend it to make it look professional. That's part of why ultimately, you know, the biggest complaint we got after the after Dylan's New Nightmare came out is that, oh, it's over. That's it. It's like, yeah, it's 28 minutes and then credits. But, you know, that 28 minutes was made for, you know, for 40, 50 thousand um, dollars, which is a a. a a fraction of a fraction of what Hollywood spends to make their films look the way that they do. So the fact that we're able to achieve the look based uh, on that, even on that budget is incredible, but that's the difference. It's the people that crowdfund that get a good budget that can actually pull off the looks. And there's still a ton of people that aren't getting paid what they should be getting paid to work on these productions. They're like you said, they're, they're results of passion. You know, it's it's a, you you have to find you have to assemble your your horror Avengers, um, all the people that, you know, will will provide, you know, provide quality work and want to that believe in your in your vision and that want to see this thing come to reality. And uh, so that's that's what's different. It's not just people like hanging out like, hey, we should do something. It's meticulously planned because you know what you can achieve and it's easier than ever for people, you know, for lower budget productions to achieve those looks. If you just put in the effort and the energy. Um, so I think that's what more people are starting to realize and finally starting to put into action. I guess if you could elaborate on that for, you know, younger people that are getting into filmmaking, um, how has it become easier? Is it just a matter of accessibility to technology is that now it's, I mean, you can get cameras that, you know, you're getting a clean, crisp image. 
That's you know, what you I mean. Yeah, that's what I mean. Do editing. Yeah. Yeah, it's not having to exactly right. You 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 nailed it on the head there. I mean, when I was coming up, when I was in high school, it, it was not like video cameras were super expensive if you wanted any kind of quality. Otherwise, you were gonna end up looking like you know a a, a bad found footage movie uh, before those were even super super popular. You know what I mean? Nowadays, you can film movies on your phone that that are hundreds of times cleaner than what we had access to when I was that age. You know what I mean? So, um, and if you were, if, if the younger audience is taking the time to study the craft and build styles and make sure that they're not skimping on any of the behind the scenes jobs, then you're able to achieve a lot more. So um, it's not easier in as much as, you know, you don't have to still build and train a team but it is easier in as much as the equipment that you have access to can make your stuff look way more professional than in the past. With regards to the writing, are there any behind the scenes details you can give about, you know, maybe how the script changed over time uh, or things that were left on the cutting room floor or things you added in later? Uh, what, what are some interesting trivia about the writing process? So the, yeah, once we, were delayed i wanted to revisit the script and just try and tighten it up as much as i could um and uh, one of the things that was suggested by vin was you know we had the whole audition scene at the beginning for dylan and everything but um he didn't have a whole separate monologue it was just a few lines and then freddie came in and that was that and vin was like why don't you give him a monologue here you know a, a little a little audition piece and i was like oh yeah that is a good good place to do it. And then I was like, well, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to make the monologue about Victor Crowley, but it really everything that he says about Victor Crowley applies to Freddie in the scene. So that's, I tried to make sure that was the case. So it's kind of hitting on both levels. It's Dylan talking about Freddie, but also his character talking about Victor Crowley and it just lines up for him. That's why he's able to act it out so well. Um, as to, I tell you two things that hit the cutting room floor um, were the two the two jokes, the two jokey jokes that I felt were jokey jokes, but they were, they were only, so they weren't like nightmare six jokey jokes. They were like closer to nightmare three or even nightmare two toned because I didn't want, I don't want jokey Freddie um, in, in the Dylan's new nightmare world. I want scary Freddie. Like he was returned to being scary in new nightmare. Um, but Freddie does delight in his work. And so there's still some things in the film that make people laugh. Like when he leans in after killing the psych and says, you know, good talk that makes people laugh. And there's a couple of other things. Uh, the, the fuck you too, kid that makes people laugh. But what I, what I was intending with the jokes that I wrote was that he's saying something that's so mean spirited that it makes the audience laugh. It's not a joke. It's just something that's really shitty to say to someone and it's just funny to see. So, for it's, instance, it's like when he does in Nightmare on Elm Street three, where he pulls the girl into the TV and smashes her head and says, "Welcome to prime time." Bitch. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's 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 a little. It was a little. I tried to be a little more subtle than that. So, for instance, when she when he cuts off her arm and she says, um, "Freddie," uh, he originally says, "That's right," um, and then he he looks at her arm and goes, 
or left as the case may be, you know? Um, and, and, but he was, I wanted him to say it really like evil, like almost like imagine a Grinchian smile, like that's right, doc or left as the case may be, you know, really kind of a more unnerving way. So it's kind of shitty, but it's not really a jokey joke, but it's funny um, to laugh at in that way. And, but at the time when we were, when we were filming by that point, Dave had done a really good job of bringing back a scary Freddy. And I felt like the jokes were going to under undermine it a little bit in retrospect. I shouldn't, I should have at least filmed the jokes and then we could have, you know, decided in the editing room if they worked or not. But um, I decided I was like, let's just not film it because, you know, we we can we're a little short on time. And um, it also is a little undermining. I'm trying to remember what the other joke is off the top of my head. I can't remember um, immediately. But one of the things that was impromptu on set was because we changed that, I needed a different response to Freddie instead of that's right, Doc, or left. So I was like, actually, it's the entity. So let's keep it freaky. Let's keep it a little unnerving and have him just say, you know, when she says Freddie, he says sometimes, um, you know, and that's like, uh, so like he's the entity. Sometimes he's Freddie. Sometimes he's he's something else. Um, and that came up just on the day. I was like, OK, what would be good? And I just thought about it for a minute. I was like, oh, well, let's just say sometimes. I, I and, was going to say to you, I, that was one thing I was worried about when I saw the live stream. You know, because I didn't know what to expect. I knew that it was going to be very professional. It was going to look great. You know, Dave McRae is a great voice actor. I knew he was going to hit out of the park as Freddie. But I didn't know if you were going to be able to roll with that idea of the entity. And I did notice that line, the sometimes, you know, because I, I think that's a really integral part of Wes Craven's new nightmare that sometimes people overlook. You're not just dealing with Freddy. You're dealing with something that is almost beyond Freddy, you mm -hmm. know, in that Wes Craven's new nightmare universe. And I appreciate that you included that into the, the short film. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, again, I really wanted to keep it in world and, and it was a lot of, it was a lot of fun for me to, to see people react to it in that sense. Like our editor, Tom Newell, um, who's who's an outstanding editor. He's he actually just edited a segment in the new VHS movie, as well as being one of the editors on the Chucky TV series. Um, but he uh, he edited the first he did his first cut of Dylan's New Nightmare before doing a rewatch of Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which he hadn't seen in years. And after he had watched uh, rewatched New Nightmare after finishing the first cut, he's like, He's like, I just wanted to let you know it. It your film actually does feel like it's in the new nightmare world. Like it, it feels like it is a natural extension of the story, and that made me feel, you know, pretty confident when someone that works in LA actively editing big projects, uh, you know, got that impression. And so I was, I was happy that we were able to to evoke um, Wes's style enough to to accomplish that much at least. Another thing I was going to say that that I think stands out about this particular fan film, this fan sequel, is that, I mean, this is really the perfect time for a sequel to Wes Craven's New Nightmare because, you know, it's been about 20 years now, right? 30, you know, 30, it's yep. been, yeah, it's been 30 years, I should say. Uh, I'm all discombobulated today, but anyways, no, I get 30 it. <laughs> years. It's been 30 years. You have... Miko Hughes all grown up to play Dylan again. And whereas the first movie, I mean, Dylan is integral to that movie. He is the, him and Heather are the leads, but 
really, I think for me, the story of Wes Craven's New Nightmare is ultimately at the heart about Heather Langenkamp. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is this is almost like a passing of the torch to Nico Hughes and the Dylan character that he plays. And it's like a shift in perspective. Could mm-hmm. you speak a little bit about that? Because I do think there's a shift in perspective in this sequel, because you're really seeing everything from Dylan's eyes, not necessarily, you're not seeing it from Heather's eyes this time. Yeah. And and again, that kind of comes back to the fact that we didn't, we didn't really have, um, we didn't really have a, you know, access to Heather to be able to write her into the story. And so to me, it made sense that after the end of New Nightmare, in my head canon, it was just like, well, you know, she is still, she was still under investigation at the hospital for possible child endangerment. And then both her and her child disappear from the hospital. And, and so to me, that's suspicious enough where the hospital staff probably would have sent the police to find out what's going on. And so in my mind, right after they roll out of the bed and start reading the script, the police start banging on the door and Heather answers. And she basically has no explanation other than Freddie. And she's got a ton of sleeping pills in her system. And so all of that combined gets her basically thrown into a mental mental institution, which if you recall in new nightmare was a concern. She was concerned that she was going crazy. She said someone close to her, Um, went into an institution, which is supposed to implicate her mother, even though she didn't want to expressly say that. Um, But yeah, so to me, it made sense that she would be in, uh, you know, away from from all of this. And it would make sense to pivot to to Dylan's character, just trying to make his way in Hollywood the way both of his parents worked. Like, that's all he knew. So that's why he's still out there trying to make it um, being a working actor and stuff like that. And uh, that's that's pretty much why the perspective shift happened. But it also well, he, it he's made, dealing not only with trying to be a working actor, but also, I guess, the pain of, you know, his mother sort of going off the deep end, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because to me, when he explode, when Freddie exploded at the end of New Nightmare, his essence went into both um, Dylan and Heather's minds. And he's been sort of dormant in Dylan's minds, kind of feeding on his nightmares, growing stronger over the course of 30 years. Whereas in Heather's mind, he's been strong enough to fuck with her the whole time, like calling her Nancy and like messing with her in her mind. So now Heather doesn't know if she's Heather or Nancy. Like that's the struggle she's been going on that Nico hasn't been seeing. And the reason she calls at the end of the film is because Freddie has come out into the real world. And so his essence was extracted from her mind and she was finally clear enough to to make that call at the end of the movie. So earlier on, uh, you mentioned that the opening, for people that don't know, we, we mentioned that this character, Victor Crowley, from the Hatchet <laughs> series, you know, so there's this whole meta reference going on to Adam <laughs> Green's, I, what is he on now? Is it, it's They're on the fifth film at this point, probably, if they're... Uh, well, yeah, the, the auditions were for Hatchet 5, because right, they've, right, right. they've only done four so far. They'll, they'll make a fifth one eventually, I trust Adam <laughs> on that one. I know, and I really I really want Miko to be cast in it now, too, like, let's, fu- let's fulfill oh, the meta. perfect, but, <laughs> but how, you've obviously shown this at film festivals... When I saw this, the premiere on YouTube, and you made the Adam Green hatchet reference, and I mean, it's playful. Some of the, you know, there's some playful jabs, Adam, but all in good fun. 
how how much did people pop seeing this uh at like film festivals or you know when you did showings of it um a lot of people so we yeah we showed it once at mad monster convention in arizona and then once at the uh first year's gathering of ghouls here in mesa arizona so it hasn't really played at, and then we actually just did a screening a very special screening in la about two nights ago but um but it hasn't really played at a ton of festivals but from from the reactions and the screenings that i have been to a lot of people just get a kick out of it like oh it's that's a thing i know and and we've gotten a lot of people um in the comments of the film on youtube being like wait is there a new hatchet coming is that your is that the what this reveal is there's a hatchet five coming and stuff and then some people are just like ah the hatchet reference lol you know stuff like that so it played exactly like I wanted. It just, I wanted to help ground it in our reality. Um, so having him actually, you know, auditioning for a very possibly could happen sequel um, made sense. And I've always been a big fan of the Hatchet franchise. Um, so much so that I went to the Victor Crowley premiere that Adam Green was at here in Arizona years ago. Um, so I, I just, I figured it was a good way to have a, have an in reference while also grounding it in our reality where these films exist and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it just, everyone seems to be good. The people that like hatchet definitely mention it and, and they seem to get a kick out of it. We got to talk here a little of a bit about, uh, Miko use because, you know, Miko is kind of like legendary, not just for Wes Craven's New Nightmare, but like I said, Pet Cemetery. You know, I know people that aren't even into horror that love him in Pet Cemetery. Because everyone's always torn by, oh my God, Gage is so adorable, but then he's so terrifying too. You know, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. and you know, I think he's an interesting actor because I think he's worked on and off since the nineties, but really the last No, film... he hadn't worked in 20 years oh, before really? this. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the last film I remember him in was that you know i'm not a big fan of it but the spawn movie you know mm -hmm. and i mean people also forget he had like a regular full uh role on um full house mm -hmm. uh back in the day so i mean he really he was also the co-lead in mercury rising with bruce willis yeah I, yeah i forgot about that but yeah mm -hmm. i mean in the 90s he was in a lot of things and we haven't really seen him for quite some time as you've pointed yeah. out uh so what was it like working with uh miko and uh how did he feel about the project? Um, did he have any input on where he wanted to take the character, etc.? Yeah, I mean, I came to him with a complete script and he liked the direction everything went. So he didn't really want to change anything in particular. I did ask him to make sure that I that he felt like the characterization was correct. And he, you know, he agreed. He he enjoyed it. He was a a true professional like you wouldn't know that he hadn't acted in 20 years the way that as seriously as he took it um but you know it, it was it was tremendous he kept us on on point a lot you know sometimes again we're you know we're a fledgling crew um you know especially when we filmed the teaser trailer like three years ago to try and help raise the funds um and uh and he was just like there was an intense scene where he had to wake up you know uh breathing heavy and stuff and he would do push-ups and amp himself up and then get in the bed and we were slow to shoot and he's like guys i'm losing the intensity can we please be on it and so like we were learning from him and uh it, it really just made the whole production better and then he when it came to the shooting the actual film 
he was like pushing himself. Like he got more emotional in two different scenes than he planned to. Um, because I was, I, I was like, you know, what about, what if you tried that? And he's like, Oh, I don't know if I can do that. And then when it came down time, he was like, okay, I think I can do it. Let's uh, let's roll it a few times. And then I think I can get there. And, uh, and so, yeah, he, he was awesome to work with and a really great guy. I really hope, you know, he gets more calls um, from this and stuff because everyone that's seen it, you know, outside of a few outliers um, have, have been like uh, Miko's so good in this. I had no idea he was so talented. And when he got to hear that response in person at mad monster for that first showing, um, he got a little choked up. He was very, you know, appreciative to the crowd. I mean, there was over 200 people that watched it in that room that first day and they were all so complimentary and he really, really got emotional. And and by the end of the shoot, um, you know, he told me, he's like, I didn't think I was wanting to do this part of the pro of, cause he's still, he does behind the scenes stuff. He's been working in Hollywood just on the behind, behind the camera um, doing various jobs over the years. He just hasn't been acting. Um, so he's like, I didn't think uh, acting was, was in the cards, but having done this, he's like, I feel like, you know, maybe the dream for that isn't quite dead yet. And so it was really, really nice to hear and just a, a wonderful guy all around to work with. I was going to say, he, I, I think that, I mean, this fan film works on its own, but I feel like without Nico, it would have had a missing ingredient just because he, he lends that air of credibility because like i said most people they'll see fan film they shut down or they think oh this is... but then they see miko used from the original you mm -hmm. know wes craven's new nightmares in it and i think that added i mean that this really is what to me gave the fan film a lot of street cred uh yeah i agree well he definitely and he knew it too like that he's been ner he was nervous the whole way i mean it, not during his acting of course but about the project like he he knew that you know he was the face of the project he's like uh, you know we all know that you know a freddie movie you know freddie is obviously one of the most important factors but you're like you said it, it there's something missing when there's not that uh that legacy piece of miko in there you know what i mean and and it just made such a difference so he knew a lot rested on his performance and everything and uh, he just really really knocked it out of the park was on uh or uh, i don't know if it's on book or off book <laughs> but he never had to consult his script he knew exactly what his lines were every step along the way which is amazing as a director having worked with you know not professionals in the past for our comedy sketches and things like that um having someone be so ready to go for such a you know, it was six straight days of shooting and he knew everything the whole way. And it was freaking awesome. Just totally amazing actor. And and uh, I'm glad we were able to showcase what he can really do. So another thing we have to talk about, and I'm assuming this was a big concern in making this. <laughs> Freddie, you know, because I think most people, uh, especially the hardcore Elm Street, the diehards will say, there is only one Freddy. There is only yes. Robert England. You know, I know so many people. You ask them about Elm Street 2010 and they'll say, what? Mm -hmm. What? I, mm -hmm. I've never heard of that movie. So, <laughs> I mean, I think you hit it out of the ballpark with Dave McRae. Because not only is Dave McRae a big fan of the genre and a very smart man that I think 
Dave has an understanding of how the genre works, why things are scary that a lot of people don't necessarily have. Not mm-hmm. only that, but his voice acting makes him a real asset. So I want to talk about getting Dave McRae, but before we talk about just uh, how you cast Dave McRae in the role, was there a bit of concern about, you know, how are we going to pull this off? Who are we going to get to play Freddy? Well, part of the reason why I was confident enough to approach Miko in the first place um, I was misguided at the time, but at the time it gave me the confidence to approach the way I wanted to. Um, I knew someone locally that was a excellent Freddy cosplayer. Um, he had a whole costume. He had the, a good mask and, you know, approximated the behavior well enough so much so that we had him on the channel for our review and commentary of the very first movie as Freddy. Um, so, you know, we were like, Freddie, what did you think of this scene and stuff like that? And so we had fun with it. And I was like, OK. And I was like, hey, would you be into doing this? And and he was at first. But as the project gained momentum, um, I could tell he was a bit checked out and I wasn't as confident in him carrying things as I wanted to. And I, um, through that time, became aware of Dave McRae more as well. Uh, because of the uh, Halloween 40 convention five years ago, uh, I met Dave in person there. And uh, and um, that was when, you know, I had written the story and I was like, well, maybe maybe Dave might be interested because he had done Freddie on his channel a few times that I had seen. And I was like, OK. And so when I met him in uh, at the Halloween 40 convention, I asked if he would want to do an interview on my channel. And he's like, yeah, sure. Cause I've interviewed other YouTubers and stuff up to that point. And I had just made a funny um, Halloween themed video called uh, Michael Myers versus PETA, um, where basically PETA was angry at Michael Myers for all the pets that he's killed throughout all the movies. And I did like little news clippings and shit like that. So I tried to make it a, a little high production value, funny, funny thing. And, and Dave had seen it. So I was like, yeah, I put out the Michael Myers versus PETA video last week. And he's like, oh, hey, hey, hey. And so I asked him if I could do an interview. And he said, yeah. And so when I did the interview, much like with Miko, I I basically backdoor got my response where I just asked Miko if he would read a script as a part of a larger interview, just as one question. And Dave, as one of my questions, I was just like, okay, I want to test your your voice ability here live on the channel. And so I had three things I wanted him to do. I requested, give me your version of the scream voice calling someone. And then I said, what do you think Michael Myers sounds like under the mask? And then the third one was like, what, you know, how would you, what would be your version of Freddie? And so after having asked that, um, and he delivered his performance uh, after the stream, I asked if he would be, interested in the role and and luckily he said he was um it helped that vince and miko were both involved uh, at that point so um so yeah just it ended up coming together well and i was completely confident that dave would knock it out of the park and i'm just glad that everyone seems to agree or at least the vast majority of people seem to agree with that did you know right off the bat that i mean i i've talked to dave before and he has very specific views about a lot of these horror franchises. You know, if you ask him about Halloween, he'll be like, in a way it it begins and ends with the first one for me, you Mm -hmm. know, because it was, it was all mood and atmosphere. He really does like the, the spooky, scary element more than the funny element. Um, 
did you know that from the start that he really probably understood what you needed to make a new nightmare sequel? He gets the sort of scary element more than he gets the funny haha element. Did that help? Yeah, it absolutely did. And he knew what we were going for as far as trying to keep it scary. But he also knew that we were trying to blend. So my my reasoning for why Freddy looks the way that he does in our film, um, because he's a blend of the new nightmare look and the older looks, is because, you know, he's been sitting in Miko's head and Miko's experience with Freddy was the new nightmare Freddy and the older Freddy's. And so Freddy exploded. And when he has to reconstitute himself, he's limited to what is in, you know, Dylan's head. And so it kind of is this amalgamation of different versions of Freddy. And uh, and that's why he ends up looking like a cross between the two different types of looks. Um, but we knew from the start that we wanted to go scary. And Dave's favorite Freddy was part two Freddy. As far as scary Freddy goes. You cut out um, there for a second. You saw said that Dave's... Oh, you said Dave's favorite was uh, part two. Freddy? Oh, D- Dave's favorite was part two. Freddy. Yeah. Part two. Freddy. He likes the scary Freddy. And then when he saw the makeup applied for the first time and he saw the sunken in eyes that we went for, he's like, oh, OK, this is my favorite Freddy. This is the dark Freddy. And that informed his performance. And so that's uh, that's why we went that way. And and I just I, I'm glad that he didn't. I mean, I didn't I knew he wouldn't let me down, but I'm certainly glad he didn't let, you know, anyone down with it. I have to uh, talk a little bit because I don't know if you've spoken about it before, but you had some really talented people from the world of special effects work and and makeup work, uh, in particular, uh, Nora Hewitt and Mike Rotella. And Mike has worked, I believe, on he worked on Smile, which was a big sleeper hit. He worked on the 2022 Hellraiser for Hulu, and I he created Nora, Man Thing for the uh, the Werewolf by Night thing. That's oh, on really? Disney yeah, Plus. yeah, yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. Very talented. I know he does uh, sculpting work, and then. Nora, I think, worked on The Nun and uh, The Predator back in 2018. So you had like some, you know, you had some heavy hitters, people that knew what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. We were very lucky. And and I, you know, I, I met Nora through Vince. Um, I helped Vince out on Never Hike in the Snow and his Disappear music video because he filmed some of it in Flagstaff, Arizona, um, which is only two hours from me. So I drove out and helped out and filmed some behind the scenes stuff. And um Nora was present for both. And so I got to meet her twice and get to know her. And the first time I did, you know, that that whole weekend where we were filming, um, I got to talk to her a few times and I mentioned Dylan's new nightmare. And she said she had always want to work on a Freddy thing. And uh, and so that relationship started there and she was on board because she knew Vince was going to be there, too. And and it uh, it just worked out really well the first day I went to when we, when Dave flew in and had his head cast by Nora and and her lovely wife Rachel um they uh I talked to Nora about what look we wanted to go for and I had three particular Freddy looks I was looking to integrate and uh, two two specifically plus the new nightmare look and so I asked her what her favorite looks were, and her two favorite looks were identical to my two favorite looks, which was part two and the demon Freddy that we briefly see in Freddy versus Jason. Um, so it's it's a blending of those two plus the new nightmare Freddy is is ultimately where our Freddy comes from. Any stories about the the makeup effects work or special effects work? Because I, I know a lot of people like the 
behind the scenes uh, stories, even even outside of special effects, were there any? What were your the biggest obstacles you had to overcome on the set making this work, making the whole movie work as a whole? So we had three gloves, um, three identical gloves, and then a couple of stunt. Or like we had a stunt glove that was plastic blades, and then we had a nubby glove which all the blades were cut off right here with some blood on them for the chest stab at the end. But um, all three of the other gloves had blades break off throughout the production process at different points. Um, I think two of them actually broke doing the, we were trying to actually cut the sheet when he first emerges, just like he did in new nightmare next to Heather. Um, But the blades weren't, built to be functional is what we were told by the glove maker after the fact he's like it's meant to be display not functional but um but so we ended up having them like re like we took him someplace and he like literally reattached and like soldered them all on super strong and recoded them and repainted them and so they're all like really solid now but um so three different all three gloves had blades break off and luckily we had like another one just barely functional enough to continue filming um, where we didn't have to film like one with a missing blade. Like I think they did in one of the nightmare movies for a scene, but, um, but uh, outside of that, the special effects story is the first day we had Freddie um, Dave. So we had special teeth made for Freddie and the first day Dave puts the the teeth in, right? This so it's the second day of shooting overall of the six day six days, but it was the first day with Freddie of three Freddie days. And it's like right at the beginning, we've just filmed the pan up shot and the boo, right? Those are the only two shots in the whole movie where he's got his teeth. And the reason why is because right afterwards he's like, Yeah, the teeth are a little loose. And she's like, Okay, we'll just try and pop them in a little bit more. And so he did, and there was like a little and uh, and he thought it was them locking into place. So he finished the angle that we were on. And then he like was pulling them out. And when he pulled them out after that shot, half of one of his big front teeth came with it. So like, yeah, it it he it completely like one of uh, two front teeth, literally one of them severed in half at an angle. And he's a voice actor. And, you know, obviously it doesn't sound right when he's whistling through his teeth. And not only that, but he's Canadian in the U.S. without his medical coverage, you know, and he he did get extra travel coverage and stuff. But the question is, does he trust the United States healthcare system or does he want to stick with his dentist up in Canada? It turns out it was an old hockey injury. It was a filled tooth that basically broke again. So it was easy to fix. But as a result of that, since we couldn't get it fixed for the production, um, he just he he had to take a minute and gather himself and, you know, put it into perspective. And ultimately, he he muscled through and he just continued to play Freddy throughout the week with a chipped tooth. So you can see in all the other bits of the movie you see his chipped tooth, especially when he emerges and like is is uh, says the fuck you too kid and laughs at him with the dream catcher. You can really see the chipped tooth in there. Um, so that's real legitimately chipped tooth because of the special makeup effect. So, yeah, the teeth uh, were not used after that. And now we have to, pay, you know, black out a portion of one of his teeth going forward. But that's one of those things that ended up just making the character look that much more 
realistic. Any other uh, just notably wild or fun stories, uh, memories you have from the making of Dylan's New Nightmare? Um, I just think some of the best memories for me are the fact that, you know, we would shoot kind of late and, uh, but so we would get, you know, we'd start early at like eight or, or 10, depending, cause we couldn't shoot more than a certain number of hours each day. And we have to have a certain number of rest hours in between each shooting. Uh, but, uh, but we would generally finish at like nine or 10 and then we'd go home and offload the footage from the memory cards onto Miko's uh laptop and we would just all of us like all the the big key players would would huddle around like eight of us like vin miko like everyone that that stayed at the airbnb with us would just huddle around the computer and just watch footage until like two or three in the morning and it was so much fun like i remember watching vince watch footage and like literally like cheer and jump and like clap looking at the footage and it was just so gratifying to see that kind of reaction from Vin, who's been doing such a great job in the fan film world and, uh, and having Dave and Miko look at the footage and be really happy with what they're seeing. And, you know, Dave leaning over and saying, you know, like, welcome to the club talking about him and Vin having, you know, sort of another level of film. And, uh, and so that, that stuff is what really was the most awesome for me. um, Just cause I, I, Many members of the crew, including Ben, our DP, like Ben came up to me at the end of day one and said, like, he's, he pulled me aside. He's like, I don't, I didn't want to do this in front of everyone, but I just wanted to let you know that this is one of the best first days I've ever had on any set. And he's out there in LA working all the time. So that was, it just was nice to hear that people were having a good time and feeling positive about the product that we were doing. So I know we've mentioned Vincent DeSanti, and unfortunately, I have not had him back on my show in a while, and I really should because he just came out with uh, Never Hike Alone 2, mm-hmm. the sequel to Never Hike Alone, the the sort of fan film that started all, in my view, for a lot of people that are getting into these fan films now. But uh, it sounds like he was really integral uh, to helping the film come together. I know I, – I think the composer that you had also – uh, comes out of the sort of Vincent DeSanti world, worked on um, yep. 13 Fanboy. He also um, did Never Hike Alone too. the whole thing. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So how important was uh, Vincent to the making of this film? I mean, yeah, he was crucial. I mean, he was he was a producer in in the biggest sense of the word. Like, he connected me with uh, with some actors that ended up in the film with Ron Sloan and Cindy Kenya. Um, he connected me with, with uh, uh, Nora, who connected us with Mikey. Um, he originally, Vin, was the reason we had the DP that we had for the teaser trailer, but ultimately moved away from and got um, Ben also through Vin. Uh, so, like, yeah, he, a lot of, uh, well, good portions of the crew came because of, you know, there are people that have worked with Vin and Vin was able to vouch for me as a first time, you know, filmmaker and stuff like that. And uh, so, yeah, very crucial. And he was he was the first assistant director. So he would uh, help me move things along and quiet everyone down and, you know, all this good stuff. So very, very key, key person to have involved and never, never asked for penny one, you know. Um, never, never asked for a dollar. I never took a dollar. You know, we paid our crew 
but he and I, you know, didn't, didn't take anything. And uh, a couple of other people um, that I don't know if they'd want us to know or not, but they, a couple of other people didn't take payment either because they believed in the project and wanted the money to go towards the film. Just a few more things. If you can stay uh, a little bit longer, Um, you know, when it comes to fan films today, I have this theory and I think we're already starting to see it happen a little bit and I can give, give examples, but I feel like guys like yourself, uh, Vincent, Dave McRae with the, the Black Christmas uh, fan sequel, I think that this is going to be a stepping stone for a lot of directors uh, onto original projects uh, that can get funded by if not bigger studios than, you know, uh, studios that may have a little bit more funding behind them than just uh, maybe you'll be able to, maybe a lot of directors that are currently doing fan films will be working with studios in the future is what I'm getting at. And I think we're already starting to see that a little where you have a guy like Jay Burleson who started out doing, you know, uh, the the short fan film Halloween Harvest of Souls. Now he's doing movies like the third Saturday in October series. So do you feel like a lot of uh, filmmakers are starting out with fan films and they may end up doing uh, bigger original works down the line? That's been the goal with all three of us. Uh, you know, we all, the whole idea of doing a fan film is because you can't raise funds effectively for your first film um, if you're an unknown quantity, you know? So if you can come up with a good idea having to do with a character that you don't necessarily own, but that people will come out for, that's a way to prove your metal, right? So that's the whole thing. Vin has now proved multiple times that he can make a high-end film on a very low-end budget. Dave McRae has proved the same thing with Billy One, and they're currently actively in production on Billy Two, uh, or actively in pre-production on Billy Two, and that's what I wanted to prove with Dylan's New Nightmare. You know, we made a really fantastic studio-level looking film for you know fifty thousand dollars, and that's you know it's it. <laughs> we're kind of looking at them like fifty thousand dollar business cards. You know, because it shows what we can do with the right team. And then we can come back to the table with our original ideas, of which I have a Word document of over 60 ideas. I have three full-length scripts, and I have about five more ideas that are fully outlined, ready to go into script form. So, like, I'm sprung, ready to pounce as soon as someone wants to give me a shot. But, no, you know, it's very hard to convince people to give you a shot on just the original ideas when you're just one dude in Phoenix, Arizona, not even out in L.A. or anything like that. You know what I mean? So um, do something that will get you some heat, some attention, some credibility, and then try and find someone that's willing to support uh, support you enough that they want to see your original stuff. So. As you said, this is sort of a, a, a shorter fan film. It's it's not like a feature length. It's it's about 28 minutes. Um, and you sort of leave it open. Mm-hmm. So is there going to be any possibility of a Dylan's New Nightmare uh, part two or chapter two? There, I mean, we have enough story for another three or four parts, but I don't think at this point that I would want to do them all separate like that. So if we are able to do it the way Vin did never hike alone Two, that was supposed to be three more short films, but he just didn't want to do it forever. So he's like, look, if we can raise enough, I'll do a full length feature, just covering everything. And that's what I would want to do for part two of Dylan's new nightmare is a full length fan film that just covers the rest of the parts we had planned. 
The issue is we have three different routes this story can take depending on who we're able to get involved in the next portion of the story. But yes, there is story for the rest. Um, we still have to finish completing the uh, the perks and everything for this one uh, and then probably take a little bit of time uh, to try and figure out who might be a part of it going forward. But there is story to finish out. This was intended to be like the first act kind of situation. So, I, you know, I, you're leaving it open for me to ask this. And if you don't want to, <laughs> if you want to be oblique about it or whatever, that's fine. But where could you potentially see the story going or what what is your ideal uh for where you'd like to see the story go so ideally and probably the one that's least likely would be i would want this to be the final heather and robert freddie movie because robert says he's done but if we were able to do our full-length story the way we wanted Robert could come back and play the confidant of Heather the way he did in New Nightmare. Oh, he you doesn't mean playing himself. Yeah, he doesn't have to play Freddy. Um, but, you know, if he did agree to come back, it would be really hard not to write one little scene where it's, well, there would be a scene where it's Robert versus our Freddy for sure. But it would be really fun if we could convince Robert to be Robert Freddy and go face to face with our Freddy just very briefly. Real quick, I just wanted to add to that. That would actually be brilliant because in a way, Robert <laughs> it's a passing Englund, of the torch kind of well, thing. Well, the thing is, Robert Englund's story thread in Wes Craven's New Nightmare is never really wrapped up, mm -hmm. right? Like what he does in Wes Craven's New Nightmare is he runs away from it all. Mm -hmm. You know, he's like, I've left town. I'm scared. You know, he kind of uh th there's a sort of cowardice there so him coming back and trying to help heather would be amazing to see he's sort of trying to redeem himself maybe from the original yeah and i think i mean i think he would be game for it you know were it to be presented by a studio because he, he doesn't think he has the physicality to be freddie anymore but he could be robert and close out this story that way and again imagine if we could convince him to get into freddie just for one face to face his freddie versus our freddie as kind of a passing of the torch it would just be so fucking cool and i already have i already have all the scenes laid out as to how it would happen and it would be it would be really really fucking neat but you know that's that's pie in the sky territory that's that's in the best possible world <laughs> now what what's the more likely scenario like i said i don't want you to give everything away but like what's the most likely uh path you see you know, this Dylan's new nightmare story taking, if it goes further, the most likely path is Freddie is messing with Dylan's life in a regular way. And we would have to resolve the Heather thing one way or another, um, towards the beginning of the next part. And, uh, and I have a couple of different ways I can do that depending on, um, what happens behind the scenes. But, um, basically there's a couple of different ways, but you have to imagine that there's going to be some questions coming Dylan's way after the death of his psychiatrist. And now he technically has a piece of evidence in his house with the pen and he was the last appointment of hers. And, uh, she's literally got notes about him uh, on her desk where she lies dead. So there's a lot of questions to be answered going forward and, um, there's a lot of fun to be had as far as the story progressing from there. You have hopes for Heather getting involved? 
Oh, very much so. I mean, hopes for I, I'm sure. assuming she may have seen it already. I'm assuming she has. People. She has. Okay. No, I, I did get word back from someone that had lunch with her recently that said she mentioned seeing it and she said she mentioned it was very well done. Um, so uh, and she also followed our Instagram about a, a couple weeks ago. So I uh, I have yet to reach out, but I am uh, because I'm. I'm giving it some space. It's it's the busy season for her with uh, October and conventions and stuff. So, um, but yeah, I, I do hope to have a conversation with her at some point to see um, what she would or would not be open for. Well, hey, Heather, if you're listening to this by some <laughs> odd chance, do it, do it, do it. I mean, well, you know, that's the great thing, though. I mean, we're in a, a place now where you know, uh, Dave McRae with its Me Billy Chapter Two. My understanding is that Olivia Yusey is uh, coming back. Yeah. So we're seeing the original actors come back for fan sequels now, which is really, really exciting. Yeah. Well, again, Vin started that off with Tom Matthews coming right back from Friday uh, from, Part Six. Yep. Exactly. And uh, and uh, well, technically, you know, there have been people that did it even before that, like. Um, a fan film, I think, made in 2016 by a couple of people that I that I know. Um, uh, the uh, the same people behind the Fredheads documentary. They made a fan film called "Don't." I think it's "Don't Fall Asleep," and that was basically telling the story of Nancy, what happens to Nancy between part one and part three, and they got Heather to do the voiceover for that fan film um, as like a wraparound. Um, and it's funny because the girl that played Heather in the film um, or that played Nancy in the film, Deandra Laser, she's the one that I brought back to do Heather's voice at the end of our movie. <laughs> so you mentioned Fred Heads. For people who don't know, that's on Tubi right now. Mm -hmm. Fred Heads, the documentary. It's about the fandom around Freddy Krueger. And this was just made last year. Fred Heads, the documentary. Oh, no, it was made a couple of years ago. No, but I, mean, couple, I think it, it came, came out. out. Yeah, it no, came that's out what last I meant. Year. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. My, yeah, it was it was made before that, but it came out around 2020. Yeah, they had a delay bringing it out for some reason. I can't remember what it was. It might have been COVID too. Well, the, <clears> the reason I brought it up is because, I mean, it's been years. It's I mean, 83, 84, I think was when the original Nightmare on Elm Street came out. 84, but, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, Freddy is still going strong in a lot of people's minds. You know, the fandom is still there. I mean, mm -hmm. granted, we're not seeing Freddy on MTV like we did in the 80s, but, you know, I think people clamor for more Nightmare. You know, you can't oh, keep yeah. Freddy down, right? right? I mean, they even did the whole comedy skit with Robert Englund as Freddy on the Goldbergs uh, yep. a few years back. So Freddy, I think, is always in the background of people's minds, you know, and people in the horror community just clamor for him to come back. What do you think it is? about freddy krueger why is freddy such a phenomena even to this day i think it's i think it's the charisma that robert brought to the character um he he it also is such a unique plot device in the horror genre right you fall asleep you can die in your dream there's this dude that stalks you in your dreams if you die in your dream you die in real life it's it's the same reason to me that the final destination movies get the juice that they get because it's such a cool unique idea there's always a giant death sequence at the beginning of the movie and then it's a matter of waiting and finding out how these kids are going to die um via random circumstances throughout the film and it's 
it's like you know it's a unique concept that is uniquely that series um michael myers it's a crazy guy uh jason it's a crazy guy you know there's so many slashers it's a crazy guy um obviously jason and michael evolved down the line and and stuff like that but Freddy has always been something special. It's why I liked Freddy and Chucky the most growing up because they're different. They have personality and they talk. <laughs> they and they, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they have personality. They they talk and they're unique ideas. You know, someone using voodoo to transfer his soul into the body of a doll and then trying to transfer it into a kid that he first encounters and reveals himself to. It's like unique. It's Chucky is uniquely Chucky. Freddy is uniquely Freddy. Um, that that's that's I think why it it sticks in everyone's mind and and they just love it. Yeah, I was gonna say it's interesting to me because I listen. I know we've had a few nightmare or we've had a few uh, Jason Voorhees documentaries, right? His name was Jason, the Crystal Lake Memories. Uh, but really, I mean, we've had Fred Heads, we've had uh, Never Sleep Again, which was the longest documentary. So amazing, uh, about, though. Right? Oh, great. And then also we had I Am Nancy. So I think there's been more documentaries made about not just Freddy, but just the Nightmare on Elm Street fandom in general. I mean, I really recommend people that uh, I Am Nancy documentary just about Heather and why people are drawn to the Nancy character. I think that was a funny tongue in cheek documentary, too. Like, cause they, they, it was, it spent a lot of time about how she feels like no one's there to see her and stuff like that at the conventions. So I thought that was, that was a funny way to approach it too differently. But it, it, there's just I, I bring that up because I think there's been more Freddy or Nightmare on Elm Street documentaries than there has for really any other 80s horror franchise that I can think of. So there is something special about it. And I'm to be honest, I'm surprised they haven't made a new one yet. I mean, it'll happen eventually. But well, the Robert England doc that came out this year hits right, on a lot of it. Uh, so. Dreams and nightmares, right? Yeah. So there's a big segment in there. So I mean, I would consider that one too. So. I, I got to ask you, what is your favorite nightmare? And, it, and if it's Wes Craven's new nightmare, what is your favorite uh, nightmare movie outside of Wes Craven's new nightmare? So, yeah, it, <clears throat> Wes's became my favorite for various reasons throughout this whole process. But um, it was always in my top uh, top two or three. I, I used to say three is my favorite because that's the most that's the most kind of. That's 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 I call the that most the MTV Freddy. Yeah, well, that's I think four is where MTV. That's sure, I, sure. I I feel like it's four. I think three. He still had his foot in scary territory. Um, it started to get a little silly, but it wasn't like super wise cracky silly. It's kind of like you said, the welcome to primetime bitch is is just something mean that's funny. Um, and him doing the puppeteering and cutting the dude's strings so he falls. It's mean but funny. It's not literally him making jokes and shit like that. So um a three and then then i did go to two and then i would say um one um but i used to not like two very much and then recent years i started to like two a lot more because he is so mean in part two he is he is there's some odd parts of part two like when he comes out into the real world somehow but it's still still a really great scene though and he's slashing through kids in reality and then he just disappears into the hedges so there's a lot of really cool stuff in that film. And I don't, I, I actually quite like four and five as well. Six is the, and I still enjoy six for what it is. I don't hate six the way so many people vitriolically hate six. Um, Cause I, I like some of the gags in that one. I love the, the parachuting bugs bunny gag. You know what I mean? The, 
all that shit is is funny to me. I mean, with with the with uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street three, maybe MTV's uh, Freddy isn't. I mean, that is sort of more the the fourth movie, but I don't know how I would describe Elm Street three other than. It feels like everything you got from one, but like amped up to 11, as they would say in Spinal Tap. Feels like one with a budget. (laughs) What's that? Feels like one with a budget, maybe. Right, right. It's just bigger, badder, meaner. And then, of course, you have Dawkins on the soundtrack. Into Mm -hmm. the fire. I mean, it Mm -hmm. it is. It's it's the ultimate spectacle uh, sort of Elm Street movie, in my view. Yeah, well, the, the giant snake Freddy. And the whole, you know, the whole, uh, the house mirror sequence, all the, uh, oh no, sorry. That's four. Uh, that snake Freddy is four. No, no. Uh, three was, so which one are you talking about? Four or three? Sorry. I got lost there. Three, three, three. Yeah. So the kids and, you know, the dream warriors giving, yeah. Dawkins, um, giving everyone powers to a, to a fashion, you know, and giving Freddie a lot of opportunity for one liners, but again, not really jokey ones, you know, sorry, kid, I don't believe in fairy tales and then stabbing him. That's not a joke, but, you know, it makes people laugh and stuff like that. So, but yeah, it is really amped up stuff in that one. Who's your favorite dream warrior? I, I'll tell you mine right now. Go for I, it. I, I've got a crush on Taryn. On Taryn. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I kind of always dug, uh, I always dug Kincaid. For for like being able to fight Freddy and stuff like that, so I kind of liked Kincaid. Um, I also did like the the Wizard Master, but I wasn't I wasn't a big D and D guy um, growing up. I never played until much much later. Now I love it. I think it's amazing because it's just oh cool. This is just storytelling fun. Um, but uh, but yeah, at that time I wasn't really into like wizards or stuff like that. So it was a funny death, but I think I liked Kincaid's powers the most. Or yeah, yeah. That's yeah, I was gonna say can't leave out Joey either because I mean that was basically me but as a teenager. Yeah, but he didn't really um do anything, but he was he was the damsel in distress. He was right, on the right, right. I guess the very he got, horny damsel in distress. He, yes, <laughs> yeah. He uh he didn't even get to have all the fun with uh with female Freddy, but uh but at least he had a good view for a portion of time. <laughs> I got to say, so I, I want to talk about my favorite Elm Street. Um, I would have to say, I almost view them as one movie. I know you know what I'm going to say. Elm Street 4 and 5 are actually my favorites. I'm not saying they're the best. It's mm-hmm. like Elm Street, the first one, I can only watch it occasionally. Just because it's like, I feel like it has to be an event when I watch it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But Elm Street 4 and 5, I continuously come back to. I mean, people can say Dokken in in three is great but drama rama man dude i'm telling you rick yeah rick's rick's uh fucking karate scene dude i i love drama rama that one song specifically i i would i would have brought that up too and i actually even though they filmed the scene the way they did because they ran out of budget his death is still like really entertaining to me um yeah i and i love alice alice is i i don't know i i enjoy her as much as nancy almost you, See, know? you know the one for me that that makes me love four is uh and i know this is sacrilege but i actually do prefer uh tuesday night to our cat i i just oh, really? i love that rendition of that for character. like the, she the 15 minutes now. we get her <laughs> yeah i mean yeah but she feels it feels like she's in it more but you're right she's only really in the first act but yeah uh and then the fifth one it's weird. I, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to see the um, there is an uncut version of the fifth one because they cut a lot out of it. Yeah, but I think the laser disc was uncut. 
someone got me a copy of it. That movie is actually a lot darker in some ways than people recognize. It's almost like gothic. I mean, they're dealing yeah. with like stuff like, you know, bulimia. And it, it's like a really kind of much more mean spirited movie than I realized when I was younger. Yeah, they're a lot more upfront with the son of a hundred maniac stuff with the with the nun in that one and stuff like that. Um, so, no, I agree. Um, I, but I enjoy them both. I love the comic book kill. Like Super Freddy is great. I actually bought a. I have a a a, a gray toned um, Freddy sweater with the with the lightning bolt on it and. I eventually, I I have a, I think you can actually see it back there somewhere. Uh, yeah, right there on the on the counter is my. Uh, here, I'll show you. I'll just grab it real quick. See, I have a a. That's not supposed to be on there, but hang on. Yeah, I have a black and white glove, or it's a gray gray tone glove. So I I want to be able to actually do a super freddy cosplay i just have to lose about 100 pounds to be able to pull it off <laughs> so it's interesting to me too have you noticed that uh where i think with fans of this series this franchise everyone will give you different answers as to their favorite i mean for a long time i don't think anyone would say elm street four or five but i even see people say that now i mean oh, yeah. i say it, it's similar to the halloween situation like, i don't think anyone will ever say six but i think that's the only one that'll never get said right. it's their favorite well freddie's dead i mean even freddie's dead is fun it's mm -hmm. just so i mean it's rachel talele's take on it and i i think rachel's a very interesting filmmaker she did tank girl as well but Freddy's Dead is sort of like the John Waters version of Freddy Krueger. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> but I, I do think nowadays, when people look back on the Elm Street films, you hear more and more, people are all over the place. Some people, it's like, four was my favorite, five was my favorite, three was my favorite. And then now it's even like the second one, which was maligned for a really long time. Now I see more people saying, you know, that second one, that's the scariest Freddy. Mm -hmm. So how do you think the fandom has changed over time? Uh, honestly, I think as more and more young people discover it, they're not as attached to certain things as the people that watched it in their childhood when they were originally coming out and stuff like that um they don't they don't see the series as like a, a decline over time where it's diminishing returns they think they see it as one body of work and you know it, it might even depend on which one they watch first you know i know a lot of people that it's the first one that they see that hooks them in and that ends up being their favorite so i think just as more more and more youth are finding it and discovering it they're not as attached to the things as we were as far as what makes them all you know these ones better than these ones or anything like that they're just like it's freddy i like this one i like this one and they're not like they're not like ashamed to like any of those ones i also have to say i like that you mentioned uh alice in part four because she really she's grown on me as like one of my i think she's my favorite uh elm street final girl you know just that scene where she's figuring out that she's gained all the powers of her friends and mm -hmm. she's working with the nunchucks you hear drama rama in the background i'll do anything anything mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and she says what's happening to me you mm -hmm. know because she's absorbing all these powers it's it, it, like i said all these movies sort of have a fairy tale element you know it's <laughs> it's sort of like the old story of like 
and I think this is why the movies resonate. First off, it's about teenagers, you know, mm-hmm. and it's tough being a teenager. And I think that's what all of these movies end up saying in a lot of ways. Um, maybe with the exception of Wes Craven's New Nightmare, I think that deals with different territory. But I think the Elm Street movies are about the difficulties being a teenager and also just having, you know, adults don't always listen to their kids. And I, you know, I'm not trying to say there's like some huge social commentary in it. That's not what I'm getting at. I, I guess I just mean that there's something resonant if you're watching it as a teenager you know you really relate to i think you do relate to the characters more than you would in other horror franchises you know like i know people say uh oh they're all like stereotypes but i think there's a bit more characterization with uh the the elm street characters and freddy's victims than you see in say the jason movies no i 100 percent agree with that they all feel like unique personalities everyone's got their own wants and desires um, in the films, you know, um, even as as little as the the mousy girl in part four, she's into her in, into her, you know, schooling and stuff like that. And the the girl in part five that's into swimming, you know, and um, dude that's into comics like they lean heavily and they and they show a lot in those movies um, rather than having to tell an awful lot. And then, right, right. well, you know, they also they also deal with like real things that I think young people deal with like you know yeah. in part four you have alice and her brother i mean they're living under the house of a guy that's basically an alcoholic and mm-hmm. mother died and like those are real things people can relate to yeah agreed and and their their relationship specifically was really easy to buy into like i love the scene where he tells her to try and do the kick and she you know and like sends her shoe into the fish tank and he's like ah swish killed a fish you know it's just it's so natural their their relationship and it felt very real so yeah i i always did I, yeah i i aligned more with the with the kids in the nightmare movies than than in the jason or the michael myers movies by a long stretch what do you think it is about the parents in these elm street movies because it takes up until freddie's dead for all the parents to lose their minds finally you know it's like all, all, in the, all the movies leading up to that, the parents are like, ah, I gave you sleeping pills. Don't worry about it. What do you think is going on with those characters? I think it's just the, everyone ostriching. You know, they don't want to believe that there's a, a madman stalking their kids in their dreams. So it's easier to just try and ignore the problem than, than believe it and tackle it head on because they wouldn't. I think it's just a matter of self-obsession. They're, 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 they're so in their own adult world that there i mean uh, that could be taken as a lesson from the films you know don't be so in your own world that you're not looking at your kids and what they're going through and trying to help them so i think it actually plays on that level if you look at it that way so you mentioned freddy's dead uh do you have a favorite part of that movie because i know people people rag on that movie but there's fun aspects to it i mean for some reason yafit koto is in the movie for yeah and and i mean Um, i mean there's some great set pieces the uh the Wizard of Oz references and all the cameos are insane. Like it's the Freddy movie with Alice Cooper. Come on. Yeah. I like, I like when John Doe finally dies um, because that's, that's fun. It's very cartoony, but when Freddy wheels out the giant bed of spikes and then like, Ooh, do you think oh, I'm your daddy? Like I thought, I like that interaction. I thought that was fun, but um, I've always been partial to Spencer's death. Um, because I really was Spencer it, the, the Brecken Meyer character. Yeah, yeah. So the video games, yeah, yeah, video games, and and more specifically, even before the video game, the Inagata Davida 
weird trippy pulling him into the the tv and stuff um that's where i first heard inagata de vida and i became obsessed with the song for years afterwards playing it all the time because it's such a cool fucking long ass rock song i forget the character's name but the one death that always got to me in that movie when i was younger was the uh the deaf kid carlos yeah, nice that, hearing that from you, Carlos. He tortures him in that yeah. movie. You know, I mean, but he's so silly about it. He's like, ooh, oh. <laughs> I know how I, I realize it's so goofy, but there is something that traumatized me as kids. Seeing. No, I loved it. I the 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 pin drop. I was like, again, that's Freddie being evil, not funny. It's just funny the evil that he's doing. Like that's 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 kind of the 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 vibe sometimes. <laughs> Any for me, anything involving the ears or the eyes in a horror movie is what I don't. I just get you know the heebie-jeebies. So. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Yeah, they're, they're they are definitely vulnerable spots. That's for sure. The Thanksgiving trailer that I just watched earlier today. Oh, Eli Roth. The, yeah, yeah. The 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 corn stickers in in the ears. I was like, oh. <laughs> Last thing I'll ask you about with regards to just the extended freddy krueger universe and fandom it's been making a comeback lately because now you can actually watch a good looking version of it freddy's nightmares the tv show version of wow. freddy that was basically like freddy hosts the twilight zone uh what do you think of freddy's nightmares i i i watched some of them as a kid i don't remember being religious about it um but i specifically when we did our run through of the nightmare franchise for the horror show, um, I specifically made sure to watch all like six or seven episodes that had Freddie in them um, for review. Uh, so I did, I did like that. Honestly, um, the rest of the episodes, I don't really care about. Like I like that he introduces them and stuff, but the stories I don't really care about the more fun extended Freddie universe for me are the comics. Cause I have every, Nightmare on Elm Street comic that was ever made and the Avatar. I've never read the comics. What, oh, what's dude, in this? There's a lot of really good stuff. I actually covered all the comics in, uh, on, on YouTube too. So you can check it out and see all the series that were, that were done. And I show artwork from all the books, but it's just great extension of the universe. There's a lot more Hypnosil in the comics. Um, there was, there was actually early comic series from innovation. They did both Chucky and, Nightmare on Elm Street comics, and they did a six-issue series, and um, the first five issues like told two different sequels. Like one was a sequel to Dream Warriors with Neil and Heather, because um, uh, or yeah, uh, Nancy, because at the end of of three, when uh, when Patricia Arquette says, "I'm going to dream you into a beautiful dream," um, that's where she so she was successful. She dreamed Nancy into a whole nother realm and Nancy has become the opposing force to Freddy's dream demon. She's like the good version of that that tries to help kids. And Neil is is made contact with her and is trying to, you know, help kids as well. So there's that. And then another couple of the issues was a sequel with Alice and Jacob and, and all of that stuff. So um, there's some really cool comics. And then the Avatar books, that were written by Brian Polito in the 2000s, they are super gory and just further further adventures of Freddy killing kids from Elm Street or from Springwood. I, I will have to read those. All I'll say about uh, Freddy's Nightmares is it's so weird watching it because, you, I mean, first off, you have the first episode where Toby Hooper 
of Texas Chainsaw fame is giving you the prequel mm-hmm. story mm-hmm. to, you know, Freddy's origins, you know. And then it's so weird watching it now because so many of the people that were in that ended up becoming like huge stars. Oh, yeah. Like Brad Pitt, mm-hmm. uh, Mariska Hargitay, uh, Lori Petty, uh, Bill Mosley, John Cameron Mitchell. I mean, it's I, I think Jeffrey Combs was even in an episode. It is so weird when you watch some of these older movies and you're like, hey, or older movies or shows. You're yeah. like, wow. You, you know? go watch the Tales from the Crypt show and you'll see how many fucking people got like you're like wait that person's in this show that person's in this show it's it's staggering no it definitely is uh so in closing what do you want uh people to get out of the conversation we've been having uh what do you hope they get out of uh dylan's new nightmare i mean i i know they'll enjoy it but but how can they like support you uh in, in further work uh on potentially sequels uh well once we get to the point of of doing a sequel if we if we get to that point I will make an announcement and people will will crowdfund it again like we did the first one so we'll we'll definitely um you know make some noise when when and if that happens uh, but yeah I mean as far as what they can take away just that you know if you have an idea and you can assemble a team that really want to see it come to fruition you know, if, if it's something you're passionate enough about, go for it. Cause the worst that can happen is people say no and, and you, you no longer pursue it and you move on to the next idea. Do you know of any other uh, fan film projects that you think are worth plugging? Because I feel like we have a whole community at this point. You know, there's so many that it's tough to tell which ones are going to be quality and which ones aren't. Um, obviously I know never hike alone two just came out and that's super quality. And I know it's me, Billy too, is going to be super quality. I know some other ones are are in production, like um, Braden Timmons' The Last Nightmare, which is his Halloween follow up. Um, that'll that'll probably be a good, entertaining film. Um, but I mean, there's so many out there. I saw one that is a, they're doing a Jason movie. It's like called Neo Jason or something like that, and they're saying that it's like Friday the Thirteenth mixed with Blade Runner. And they have this big neon Jason as their artwork and stuff like that. I'm like, I don't know what that is, but I checked it and it raised like 35, 40 grand. So I'm like, wow, that's going to be super crazy. (laughs) So how can my listeners uh, keep up with what you're doing at the horror show and uh, any other plugs? Yeah. um, The horror show channel on YouTube is, uh, is the where, where to go. There's a lot of horror shows on YouTube. So if you just type the horror show, Uh, We might be low on that list, uh, but we might not. I don't know. But the Horror Show channel will find us immediately. We've done over 4,000 episodes since 2014. And uh, we we do regular content, trailer reactions, movie reviews. um, Lots of great horror movies this year that we've been reviewing. And uh, Any favorites? uh, When Evil Lurks is the best horror movie of the year by far right this is, now this just came out it's is it a international film or yeah it's uh from argentina and it's dropping on shutter before the end of the month and so it's it's gonna get even more acclaim once it once it hits shutter but it's it's by uh, a man named uh, uh demian rogna and he did terrified in 2017 
which was also from Argentina. Was that the that had the cover with the like really lanky looking the dudes with his face eyes. and yeah, his yeah. face face split in half? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yep. yeah, yeah. That movie is fucking fantastic, and it was one of my favorite horror movies of the last decade. And so when I found out that this was his as well, I made sure to go and see it in the theater, even though it was a very small theatrical release, like Cobweb was. And it was easily by I heard far Cobweb was very good, by the way, Cobweb was very good. But this this by far outclassed everything that I've seen this year by far. I'm going to have to watch it because for me, the the one that really stood out to me, and I know this is going to sound, I don't know, like hipsterish to say this, but I, I really liked Talk to Me. And I know yeah. A24 people think, oh, it's an A20, but it, A24 distributed it. But yeah. I thought that was a, a really interesting take on the uh, possession film. It was something yeah, that out was, of left field. That was fantastic. And the guys that made it, um, they started on YouTube as well, a channel called Raka Raka. They did like the the action. They did the, the viral video, Harry Potter versus Star Wars. That was them. And um, they also did like the murderous Ronald, Ronald McDonald series. And I was all... going to say they yeah. did the McDonald's massacre. I knew that name yeah. sounded familiar. Yeah, they made talk to me. So okay. like, that's the pedigree right there. And that was their first film. And they had a studio want to buy the rights to make the movie, but make make creative changes. And they refused. They said, no, we'll just make it ourselves. And and try and get distribution and they did and they got a24 and now it's like acclaimed and they're gonna be doing a sequel and a prequel and all kinds of craziness and they put out the actual hand as a thing you can buy like it's fucking crazy have you been surprised by any of the uh if not original horror than the horror that so i think you know one thing that i kind of get hung up on when it comes to the horror movie community is and i get why youtubers have to do this but every year it's, okay, Halloween ends is the biggest thing all year. That's all we're going to talk about. Or, you know, uh, Saw X is all we're going to talk about for a month. But there's so many, and that's cool and all. Like, I, I watch those movies too. But I feel like there's a lot of movies getting released on even places like Tubi that really go under the radar. Um, movies like Bury the Bride, uh, The Wrath of Becky I really enjoyed. Do you feel like there's a lot of original movies that go under the radar for people? There are. I mean... To be, I mean, there's a glut of awful crap too. I'll be honest. Yeah, I mean the 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 real high end stuff hasn't really started coming to Tubi or Screenbox yet. There have been a couple of good ones. Screenbox has a lot of great documentaries over there, uh, like a lot of great ones. But um, I still don't. I haven't watched a movie on Tubi that was released on Tubi and been like, "Wow, that was really good." That has started to happen on Shutter fairly regularly. So Shudder was the same level as Tubi when it started. That was a number of years ago now, though. They've established themselves, and now they're getting really quality product. Um, so I think it'll happen eventually. But yeah, absolutely. People that say there's nothing new coming out uh, movie-wise just aren't looking. They're well, just not Even looking. not just with Tubi, but like one of my favorite movies of the past two years was um, Torn Hearts with uh, Katie Sagal. And it was a Blumhouse movie, but it was only on... Um, MGM Plus. So, oh, wow. Or Epic at even, the time. I haven't even yeah, heard of that one. It's Katie Sagal. It's like a country music star uh, that's like faded from her stardom. It's kind of one of those psycho bitty movies where, you know, the old evil woman goes crazy on the young kids. Wait, but Katie Sagal, not. From... Yeah. From, from Married with Children and oh, Futurama. Okay. I, 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 I always said her name. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, I, yeah. She's, she's, uh, she's awesome. 
I never watched Sons of Anarchy, but apparently she was great on that too. Yeah, well, I think this uh, Torn Hearts was their first horror movie, and I'm just mentioning it because there's a lot of stuff. Now I remember hearing about it. Now I remember hearing about that. Yeah, we did a trailer reaction to it. I think once upon a time. Oh, really? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Okay, interesting. I'll have to check it out then. I liked it a lot, but there's a lot of great stuff coming out, and I hope people will check out Dylan's new Nightmare. Uh, I really think more people need to support specifically the horror fan film community because I'm a horror guy, but you guys are knocking out of the park. Dave McRae, Vincent DeSanti, everyone else in this community uh, is really doing a lot, and and yourself, of course. So I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Everyone check out Dylan's new Nightmare. That's on the Horror Show YouTube channel, right? Yes, it is indeed. Mm-hmm. the horror show channel on youtube and thank you again cecil laird for coming on parallax views thank you very much for having me well that does it for this edition of parallax views hope you're enjoying the spooky season happy halloween folks and check out dylan's new nightmare on youtube at the horror show youtube channel as always if you appreciate the work here i do at parallax views please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.